This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hot Take is brought to you by Outer Known. Outer Known offers women's and men's clothing where style meets sustainability. And they take care of the people who make their clothes by providing safe working conditions and a fair living wage. I know I love my Outer Known clothes. I've got a few jackets from them, and it's just gotten cold enough in New Orleans to wear them around. So very glad that I have them. Um, winter is here, and Outer Known is the perfect place to update your wardrobe with their best-selling blanket shirt or any one of their many sustainably sourced cashmere sweaters. Go to OuterKnown.com today and enter the code HOT at checkout, and you'll get 25% off your full price order. That's OuterKnown.com, O-U-T-E-R, K-N-O-W-N dot com. And remember to use the code HOT at checkout for 25% off. Check them out today, OuterKnown.com. And don't forget promo code HOT for 25% off. That's again, O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N dot com. And use the code HOT. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. <laughs> and, and when we do, I like to break out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a, a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. 
and it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Hegler. And this is our second to last episode, Amy. It is. And it's our last news digest. It is. So we're going to take this opportunity to look at some news stories that are kind of a window into broader topics that we've been wanting to talk about, including stuff like degrowth and hope. And, and defeatism. <laughs> defeatism. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, plus a little update on what's been happening in the news this week. One thing that I've been seeing a lot of, unfortunately, is climate deniers kind of coming back from the dead. And also yeah. like the stories that they like to tell coming back yeah. in a big way. Yeah. The trolls um, are back out hardcore. Big time. <laughs> this is getting, like, I feel like it's getting blamed on the Elon Musk Twitter thing. And that's certainly a factor. Um, like, I'm hearing from climate scientists on there that, like, they're all of a sudden getting harassed, like, never before. And Aren't you getting um, it, too? I'm getting it. I have, like, a pretty solid block list now. And so, Me like, too. I, I am, but I'm, like, not, I'm not really seeing them. And I don't, I think I have my settings set so that I don't automatically see replies from anyone that I don't follow. So I just ignore them. Yeah. Um, so I've got a pretty strong block and mute situation going too. And, you mm -hmm. know, Twitter has kind of learned my preferences, but they're still cracking through. That's how I know there's definitely a lot of them. Um, and they follow the yeah. hot take account on Twitter too. And I've noticed more mm -hmm. and more of them like, and it's like, you follow me. <laughs> so that's yeah. how you know it's a troll. But anyway. Yeah. 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 So there's definitely a bunch of those. I've definitely noticed a major drop in engagement on climate stuff and just in stuff showing up in my feed, mm -hmm. which is weird because I pretty much only follow climate people. Yeah. So it's very strange for me not to be seeing as much climate coverage. And that's indicative of stuff that's happening with the algorithm in general. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's happened is um, the passage of the IRA, which, oh, right, that. you know, was like the first big piece of climate policy. And it hinges quite a bit on implementation at the state level, right? So there's all this budget that's been made available. There's incentives, subsidies, all of that stuff. But they require states to actually um, to implement. And, and there are, let's not forget, like several goodies for the fossil fuel industry in here too. So they're really looking at this and going, okay, how do we maximize the benefit for us and minimize the growth of renewables? And you're seeing, I mean, it's great. It's weird. It's honestly, it's like a time machine. It's like so many old zombie climate denier narratives coming back like co2 is good for the earth it grows plants and like wind turbines kill birds and all this shit that's like 
oh, wow, okay, it feels like the late 90s again. Yeah, but see, <laughs> this is why I've been training for the zombie apocalypse for all this time. It's true. Like, it's true. I've always known yeah. the zombies were coming, so... Here we are. Um, But also in honor of our last episode, uh, Amy, I've prepared a little, or second to last episode, I should say, Mm I've prepared mm -hmm. a little surprise for you. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This is the Amy Westervelt impression that I've been working on for three years. (laughs) 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 It never never had the guts to try out in front of you. Um, Let's hear it. So if you know, Amy uh, has another podcast called Drill, which is an amazing podcast. And it's also why I got really Twitter weird and slipped into her DMs one day. And it eventually <laughs> turned into this friendship. So mm-hmm. this is what Amy sounds like on Drilled. Welcome to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Hang on a second. I I gotta like hold it together. (laughs) The Republic. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Shit, I worked on that for three years and I can't do it anymore. You sound so serious. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is drilled. And like, <laughs> there's this, there's this oh, very small tone of, I'm so sorry I have to tell you guys this stuff. I know. Just buckle up, guys. <laughs> exactly. Here, here it comes. That's exactly your tone of drill. <laughs> Almost like, I hate myself for having to tell you how this horrible shit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's but true. Follow though, me down this road. Bad. And, yes, but also, yes. it's a it's an amazing, amazing <laughs> podcast, and I I'm a huge fan of it. So, but that's my Amy Thank Westervelt you. impression. That was good, actually. I was like, oh yeah, that that is uh, <laughs> I said my name. <laughs> oh my god, I practiced oh, well in the done. mirror and everything. Okay, all right, that's hilarious, hilarious. All right, and with that, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. Okay. Okay. Mary, speaking of zombies and the zombie apocalypse you've been training for, my biggest zombie fear is the return of long dead viruses as the permafrost melts. And it's fucking happening. Oh, my God. There was a zombie virus found in the ice. Why were they in in the ice? The ice didn't melt. They just went in the ice? No, 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 no. They found it thawing. So scientists found a 48,500-year-old virus thawing um, in the permafrost in Siberia. This is so terrifying to me. It's a team of researchers from Russia, Germany, and France. They said the biological risk of reanimating the virus that they're studying is, quote, negligible. That's not good enough for me. It's not. I'm sorry. It's not going to do I'm it. Sorry. It doesn't clear the threshold. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, And also, like, let's face it, the risk is going to increase as more viruses make their way out of the permafrost that was never supposed to melt. So, okay, you know what this makes me think of is 
when people talk about like where to move during the climate mm-hmm. crisis, they always point to these really far north places, right? And that Siberia and Russia is actually going to do better in the climate crisis than anywhere right. else, almost to the point they pick this paint this picture where they're good. And mm-hmm. uh, this doesn't sound good. Zombie viruses, my dude. Zombie viruses. No, 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 no. Like, what? (laughs) They don't even have alcoholism under control. It's true. It's true. Our producer just put an excellent permafrost dad joke in the notes here. Maybe it should be called temp frost. I don't get it. Mary. Instead of permafrost. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right. Good one, Ray. All right. That was good. All right. Not bad. <laughs> I, it's a thinker. Um, but, yeah, um, this is bad. It's real bad. Um, some better news. Actually, it's still bad news um, in the Arctic, but I, I find it amusing and cute, even though it is bad, is that the fucking beavers are taking over in the Arctic. <laughs> Were they like beating up polar bears and shit? I yeah, I guess they're just moving. Like they're moving in as the <laughs> as the Arctic kind of melts. They're just like, fuck it. We like it here now. Speaking of people like migrating in climate, they've decided it's time to move into the Arctic. Um so they said, fuck your borders. Yeah. Um yeah. and I kind of love that for yeah. them. I do. It's not great for fish. Or for the indigenous communities living there that rely on the fish because beaver beaver dams fuck shit up, man. Okay, they well really, then. Um, they reroute everything. Uh, so, so yeah. But on the flip side, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll start hunting beavers. I mean, it's hard for me to root for the beaver now. I don't. I don't know what to do with this information. Yeah. That whole area, the fact that it's melting, it's not just viruses that are getting out. It's also going to be a huge amount of trapped methane, which is not what we want. There are beaver climate refugees, my dude. It's pretty crazy. I, you know, we always talk about these bingo cards of all the things I've thought about, about the future of climate change. And I've thought about a lot. Yeah. Beaver climate refugees was really just, hadn't crossed the mind. I mean, I guess Pretty it should have. down the list. I guess it should have. I guess I should have envisioned this exact scenario, but I didn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. The beavers, they're building dams. They're fucking up stuff with the fish. They're, they also um, make the water deeper, so that contributes to more permafrost melt, which means maybe more viruses getting out. Or whatever the fuck else might happen as permafrost melts. Damn or beavers getting out too. Beavers, get it? Bad beavers. Damn, Damn beaver. beavers. Get it? That's a good one. Thank yeah, you. Good one. Thank Thanks. you. Nice. Um, oh okay. dear. And it's going to happen with more and more animals over the course of time. Like more and more people yes. are going to be like, "Well, guess we got to go." You know. That's right. You know, animals, trees. Actually, too, lots of like plants are migrating. Birds are getting all fucked up. It's not good. Yeah, not good. Someone at a uh, dinner party told me that uh, climate change makes snakes get bigger too. And yeah, Whoa, so stop. yeah, so I went ah. home. I went home. 
Like, like I'm out. I, I was I'm just out. like, I I'm gotta out. go. I can't take this. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the same time, nice um, over in the causes of the converse of the climate crisis situation, uh, the Keystone right. Pipeline right. is spilling in Kansas. Oh, what a shock! Yeah, um. that that um, <laughs> that pipeline we thought we had uh, gotten rid of. Nope, mm-hmm. live and well. That's right. Yeah. Um, like a lot of folks think Keystone XL, Keystone Pipeline. Like, no, there are different pipelines. There's so many fucking pipelines. So many fucking pipelines. Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, spilled as of now 14,000 barrels of oil <laughs> into mm. a creek in Washington County, Kansas. Um, nice. Yeah, it's the biggest spill in the history of the Keystone Pipeline. Um, more than 22 previous spills combined since this is 2010. The, the, I feel like the fossil fuel industry is constantly talking about how, like, like they basically act like, oh, we don't even have spills anymore. Yes, they do. All that They're time. They're like, oh, we've totally figured this out now. No, you haven't. You right. Have and these are the people that we're <laughs> supposed to trust to figure out, like, green hydrogen and whatever it is they do to algae. That's right. Um, and and let's, let's not forget building a whole new pipeline infrastructure for compressed carbon as part of all these yes. carbon capture projects. We're supposed to trust poisonous. Them. If it if it escapes, so like they don't know how to do the shit they've been doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. They're not smart. For, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just I don't know. I feel like um, it's weird. I almost feel like there's less. Sometimes there's like less attention paid to the more immediate negative impacts of oil and gas um, when we talk about climate. And it's really important to remember that they are very much still there, too. Yeah. You know, like the noxious fumes that are emitted at refineries, the spills that are like a very regular occurrence. Um you know, that like those creeks now, now that's like water that's that's poisoned. That's going to f- affect fish. It's going to affect all of the surrounding ecosystems. It's going to affect right. water, all of it. That's you know? what I wish um, was more apparent yeah. to people that c- fossil fuels have been killing people. It wasn't until right. it, like it didn't wait until climate change. If you lived anywhere near this infrastructure, it would kill that's you. Right. It has been that's deadly right. from jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Uh, speaking of deadly, <laughs> do you like that smooth transition? Speaking of death caused by oil and gas, Where let's it works. talk about uh, all the data on what happened in the 2022 European heat wave, because that's starting to come out. Oh, yeah. And just a few months ago. That's right. And apparently it was responsible for more than 20,000 death. Wow. So yeah. So there's a new report that came out. There was an article in Reuters about this. Um, these are the, the official figures from the summer heat waves in France, Germany, Spain, and Britain. They led to 20,000 excess deaths. So this is really interesting. Like there's a big thing that's starting to happen with what's called attribution science in the climate space where they're better able to say, look, in the absence of climate change, we would have had X number fewer deaths, you know, in this hurricane or this flood or now these heat waves. Um, and I, re- I think like the more of these kinds of studies that stack up, the more we're going to start to see wrongful death suits pegged mm. to climate change. Um, it's really like, you know, it's it's interesting from that standpoint. It's also 
incredibly sad that 20,000 people died unnecessarily because we haven't been able to get climate change under control. Yeah. Um, that also yeah. makes me wonder, you know, is who's doing that type of science about heat waves in, in Africa um, and yeah. Pakistan and India? Because those are going to be some really high numbers, too. Yeah. Well, especially like in the last year, didn't India have like something like more than 70 days that were like, you know, temperatures where your body doesn't even sweat anymore? Yeah. You know, and that's really dangerous. Heat. That's really yeah. dangerous. So I'm sure yeah. somebody is doing that research. So I, yeah. I don't know if it's been published yet. I haven't seen anything about it, but I'm sure those numbers are coming either, out from somewhere. I hope so. I sure hope so. Yeah. Um, worth pointing out that... In 2003, there was a European heat wave that caused more than 70,000 excess deaths. That study was actually one of the first to look at uh, the impact of climate change um, on heat-related deaths. Uh, so that was the biggest one, but this is the biggest one since then. And the death toll was way higher than expected. And, you know, of course, as we see, start to see these really incredibly long heat waves, high temperatures... We're, you're going to see impacts on not just human health, but also on the grid and its ability to deal with these things, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, which further exacerbates health problems, death toll, all of that stuff. It's like this vicious cycle where, you know, people, if they have air conditioning, they're running it. That's causing brownouts. Some people don't have access to air conditioning. You know, it's it's not great. Mm -hmm. Not great. Um yeah. The other big um, study out this this week is on coral. Mm -hmm. Apparently 70% of Florida's coral reefs are eroding. 70%. That's crazy. I know. I know. Coral reefs are hotbeds of biodiversity. They're these essential ecosystems for coastal and aquatic life, but they're also big carbon sinks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they protect you from storm surges and floods and they're just we need them they're they're yeah. really beautiful but also like we need them they're incredibly important for our ecosystem so yeah this is devastating news it's really it, yeah it is i feel like this is like a, a good one to um to talk about something that we've been talking about amongst ourselves for a while, but like, I don't know if we've had a chance to talk about it on the show yet, which is this whole way that, you know, for a long time, the climate movement was too focused on nature and polar bears and all of that stuff. And then it's now almost overcorrected in the opposite direction where like, I pretty routinely see climate people kind of being like, Fuck nature, you know, yeah. <laughs> this way that I find really troubling. I'm kind of like, uh, you know, yes, we absolutely need to care about humans, but also like people weren't concerned about nature. Well, some people were, but um, concern for nature is not just about it being pretty or us liking to look at it. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not just it's aesthetics. It's our we, ecosystem. We live man. here. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're it's part of this ecosystem. Yeah, We're part right. of the planet. Right. Like, it's, you know, and then, I, and the reality I, is, like, we don't know what, what happens totally when these things go away, right? Like, we have, we kind of know, we have some projections, but like, 
I don't know. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that we have a really great grasp yet on how losing so many ecosystems will impact humans. Um, so, and, and not just, again, not just like, you know, people being sad because they can't go scuba diving. Right. You know? <laughs> right. It's like, I, yeah. I like my skin, but not just to look at it. I like it because like, Ooh. it's, it's my skin. It protects you. Yeah, exactly. It's part of my body. Exactly. And I need exactly. it to hold my organs in. Exactly. Exactly. It's exactly like that. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I feel like, you know, when we hear news like this, like it's not just, oh, coral's pretty to look at. It's like, oh, this is a really like integral part of our ecosystem. And there's lots of other things that will be impacted if it goes, including lots of things that impact us. Not cool. Don't I don't love it. Okay, so the other there's the other kind of like big news story this past week or two weeks really is um in the legal side of things. Your favorite. My favorite. Yeah, James Hansen, like legendary NASA scientist. He's like the guy that first testified to Congress about global warming being mm-hmm. here right now in the in the late 80s. Um, he has sued the EPA, Mary. <laughs> He's, he has sued the EPA. He, like, he and a few other folks sent a petition to the EPA back in September asking the agency to regulate greenhouse gases as pollutants under the Toxic Substances Control Act. And their argument was like, look, you guys keep trying to use the Clean Air Act and it's not working. Like that's what ended up in court under West Virginia versus EPA. And it it kind of like has that ability, <laughs> you know, it's like they're almost guaranteed to have a, a lawsuit if they use the Clean Air Act. But the Toxic Substances Control Act is actually ex- really explicit. Um, it says, look, the EPA has the authority to regulate any pollutant that poses an unreasonable risk to human health and the environment. And I think these gases qualify. So why aren't you doing your job and regulating these things under this law that already exists and already gives you the authority? Hmm. Um, The the EPA said, no, we're already doing enough. Oh, word. (laughs) Yeah, they did. And Part of what they said in their response was that the pass- they pointed to the passage of the IRA as proof that they're already doing enough, which is very interesting because the IRA sort of famously includes absolutely no regulation. Famously no, there's, so. It's, it's like... All charismatic. Exactly. So, so yeah, Hansen and his, his co-plaintiffs said... I don't think so, and filed a lawsuit in Oregon a couple weeks ago, um, and they are trying to compel the the EPA to regulate these um, these greenhouse gases under the Toxic Substances Control Act, which is really interesting. It's it's like it's an interesting suit. It'll be interesting to see because how embarrassing will it be if the EPA has to stand up in court and prove? how it's actually totally effectively regulating greenhouse gases. <laughs> Come on. Come on, guys. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, he's still got big hero vibes after all the time. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. The other big one is um, the first 
climate RICO case was filed. So this is fascinating because RICO laws were passed in the 70s to deal with the mob. Yeah. Um, I remember them from <laughs> Yeah. From all exactly. of those sorts so, of mob stories. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So like, um, so the, you know, people have been saying for quite a while that why aren't we seeing racketeering laws being used in some of these suits against the oil companies because they were clearly colluding. There were, you know, these third party entities that were coordinating some of these deceptive campaigns, all of that kind of stuff. So now there has been one. And I love this. It's been filed on behalf of 16 Puerto Rican cities hmm. pegged to Hurricane Maria. Oh, um, so who are they yes. suing? They're suing everybody, Mary, everybody. <laughs> okay. It's like it's like the oil companies, the American Petroleum Institute. Nice. All the like old school climate deniers as individuals, uh, like the heart, like the Cato Institute, the oh, Heart wow. Institute, like all of them. <laughs> How much are they suing for? Well, they're actually not even claiming damages, which is very interesting because part of part of why people often use RICO is because you if you win, you get um, treble damages, so three times what you're asking for. Oh wait, there. Um, Does this count as suing or charging someone? Suing okay. because it's not being brought by the federal government. So it's not a criminal charge. It's a civil suit, which you can use RICO to do. I think there is some amount of money that will be asked at some point. That's not clear yet. But they're claiming that these entities uh, perpetrated fraud. They are, they're, they're making like quite a few different allegations in this suit. They haven't brought up wrongful death yet, but I think that that is potentially in the cards as something that might get added to mm -hmm. this, which would be huge. Um, they're adding more cities now to the case. And yeah, I don't know. It's going to be really, really interesting to see uh, what what happens with that case. Definitely um, one to watch. There are so many climate court cases going on. It's crazy. It's crazy. There, According to the latest IPCC report, there are over 1,800 climate cases in the world right now and like 80 percent of them are in the u.s it's uh, wild amy do you feel like they get enough coverage in the media no i don't i don't because i think that there's a problem sort of like a structural problem with media outlets in their coverage of these kinds of cases where usually they'll have like the legal reporter cover it but the legal reporter is not often someone who knows much about climate or they might have a climate reporter cover it, but they don't know that much about the legal system, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so you end up with a little bit of a gap. And the way that papers and magazines are set up to cover lawsuits is, like, you might get a story when a case is first filed. Maybe you'll get, like, an update if and when there's a ruling. But you don't get, like, the whole story behind it. And to me, that piece is really interesting. And also, like, there's so much evidence that comes out in these cases. Like, a lot of the, the documents that people point to now are things that have come up in these cases, you know. And also, then, the, the cases make use of a lot of, like, the the Exxon new documents and stuff, too. Mm -hmm. But as these, these cases start to go forward and get into actually, like, what's called discovery and depositions, like there's going to be more and more information coming out about what exactly these companies were getting up to 
in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Which is super interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I, like, I want the mess. I want the, like, the juicy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think, like, the for the most part, really, like, outlets are not set up to cover them well. And I, like, I don't know... I think Bloomberg has someone who's like regularly covering this stuff. That's the only one that I've seen. Um, the New York Times used to. They totally stopped covering the climate cases like a few years ago. And I'm really? sorry, I have to point out that they happen to use as one of their First Amendment attorneys, the guy who is like the spokesperson for all the oil companies in like the lion's share of these cases. So I find that to be quite strange. That's a bad um, look. <laughs> it's a bad look. Optics only bad. You know, right. like right. if only because it doesn't look so good, I would maybe not do that. Um, but yeah, I haven't. They really haven't been covering them ever since um, John Schwartz left. But even before he left, you know, they moved him off of covering those cases for like the last year that he was there. So. Yeah, I think it's weird. Like, I didn't see a story in the New York Times about the RICO being filed, no. for example. That's a huge fucking deal. The first climate RICO gets filed and the New York Times doesn't cover it? Like, weird. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. So, anyway, that's what's happening in the legal world. <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, they definitely have, it's not like it's a five-person newsroom. There's a lot of people, a lot of resources there. There's no excuse for that. Definitely. You know, actually, I um I had an interview with Representative Ro Khanna this morning and Ooh. about the the documents that came out um through the House Oversight Committee's investigation. So that just wrapped um last week and they put out their report and they also published like hundreds of documents that they got through their subpoena in that investigation. And I was asking him, like, what were the things that jumped out at you? And one of the things he mentioned, which I was like, oh, spicy. He was <laughs> like, you know, um, these, one of the things that really jumped out to me was like the bullying tactics that these companies use against media. Hmm. And they really went after the New York Times to, to like discourage them from covering this investigation mm -hmm. or the, the documents that were coming out from it. And, you know, and he's like, and you know what? It worked. Like the reporter that was covering it got pulled off of it. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, that's so, yeah. that's not great. It's that not. not. And great. that's, that's, you know, a thing to underscore is that when we lament the lack of coverage, we don't mean to like beat up on reporters or even editors because in these, <laughs> these are complicated situations. That's right. With a yeah. lot of different decision makers, there's boards involved, all sorts of things at these big yeah. institutions. That's right. And and I think that I do think that the fossil fuel industry has been very good at painting the push for accountability as like an activist thing, mm -hmm. a sort of bias, silly juvenile thing, a biased thing. Um, it's weird. We're going to actually we're going to get into that a little bit more after a quick break. Hot Take is brought to you by Sleep Me. 
Sleep Me is the new home for chilly sleep, the amazing mattress toppers that keep you cool when you're asleep. And why is that important? Well, because science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. Temperature-controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work and improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. I am horrible at sleeping. Um, Just bad. I'm a bad sleeper. Can't get to sleep. Can't stay asleep. This actually helps me stay asleep and wake up feeling like I actually got rest. It's pretty amazing. These mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep. They're sleep systems that are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. They're also always innovating, and they just launched the new Doc Pro sleep system. It has two times more cold power than the other models. It's whisper quiet, and it has a tubeless mattress pad design that allows for five times more cooling contact. Head over to Sleep dot me slash ht to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new doc pro cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for hot take listeners and only for a limited time. That's sleep s l e e p dot me m e slash ht to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up refreshed every day. Hot Take is brought to you by Athletic Greens. As most of our listeners know, I started taking AG1 because it has vegan collagen in it. Um, and I am uh, a skincare freak and collagen is great for skincare. It's also great for keeping your joints lubricated and moving. And, you know, as somebody who's getting a little bit older, that gets a whole lot more important. Um With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. That special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in these winter months when we don't get as much sunlight and is cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash hot take. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hot take to take ownership over your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You know, let's talk about doom and gloom versus sunshine and butterflies, shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Oh, man, I'm so tired of this dichotomy. Yeah. It's not real. It's not real. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite annoying. But yet, we keep getting long-ass stories about it. 
So we wanted to talk about, this is an overall trend that happens in climate coverage, and it comes back every, you know, I would say two years. Where we're yeah, de- I was just going to say that. Every couple of years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh-huh. this debate about, do we tell climate change in terms of, like, solutions-only optimism, or do mm-hmm. we tell, like, the pessimism and the doom and gloom of it all? And if we tell the mm-hmm. doom and gloom of it all, doesn't that shut people down and become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Mm-hmm. So there is a, a story in October uh, by friends of the show, David Wallace-Wells, um, that gets into some of this. It's, it's more complicated because it's like hopeful, but also a lot of doom and gloom is in here. And it's, the, basic, the basic argument is like our worst case scenario just got a little bit better, basically. Right, right, right. That's the simplest yeah, way I like- can explain it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like an update on the worst case scenario, but it's like, it's sort of, I think it's called the new climate reality beyond climate catastrophe. That's what it is. And it's talking about, it's trying to sort of like paint the landscape of this new climate reality that's like neither great nor as terrible as we thought it might be. Um, And it kind of bounces back and forth between hope and doom right updates you know some of I, I think like in some ways it 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 seemed to me like maybe David felt a responsibility to sort of update the prognosis because he's he's so probably the writer most tied to being like guys like this is a big problem and I do remember when that story came out um the uninhabitable earth it came out in New York magazine first and that was in what like 2017 and a lot of people in the climate space really lost their damn minds. Like they were really like, you can't tell people this. Yeah. You can't scare people like this, you know? Yeah. Um, he was the first journalist I had ever seen freak out about climate change in public in that way. Yeah. I was and I would argue that it was really necessary. I really welcomed it. And so he he's written about this thing before, right? What is what they call the business as usual scenario. And it used to right. be about two degrees, like five or six degrees of warming. And now it's come down to two to three degrees of warming, mm-hmm. which is yeah, orders of magnitude better. But also like that, he talks about this dichotomy of like, yeah, that's true. But also it's true that that is deadly for a lot of people. Right. Um, right. And I think it's Catherine Hayhoe that he talks to in it that points out that like also, you know, a lot of the stuff that we thought wouldn't happen until you got to higher levels of warming is happening earlier than anticipated. So like, we're not actually totally sure what two to three degrees means. Certainly not enough to say, oh, it's okay, guys, don't worry too much, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. So yeah. How did you feel about where he landed in the end? I don't know that he necessarily landed anywhere. Like it felt, it felt a little bit like he was working through, you know, a few different things throughout it. The one thing that jumped out at me was like, I don't know how you write 5,000 words or it was, it might not be that long, but it it was very long (laughs) story and not mention um, accountability or the fossil fuel industry really at all. Uh, especially because there is quite a bit in there about, you know, political will and 
you know, things that could happen. Um, both Olufemi Taiwo and Kate, Dr. Kate Marvel were quoted in this piece yep. saying things that, you know, you heard them say on this show as well about how, you know, the, like Dr. Kate Marvel has, says over and over again, like the world, like the world is, will be what we make of it. <laughs> you know, like we have actually a lot of control. We can make decisions and all of those things. And then, um, you know, Femi pointed out like, look, I think we're going to see an increase in authoritarianism and he doesn't call it this, but basically eco-fascism and like policing of immigration and all of those like kinds of geopolitical things that, that we talk about with respect to climate change and large scale migration, both in countries and beyond them, Mm -hmm. between them, all of that stuff. Um, I don't understand how, you leave out this massive, incredibly powerful entity that kind of sits over all of that. And in many ways controls the, um, the choices that are made. Um, Cause I think, I don't know, I, I honestly, and this is where, you know, we were, we kind of hinted at this before the break, but like, I feel like there's this weird sense that like, um, you know, just being like Exxon's bad yeah. is is like uh, a sort of reductive and finger pointing and juvenile and maybe a little bit activist and all that stuff. I don't like I don't have a particular bee in my bonnet for any one oil company. Uh, I'm more I'm just like, look, this industry as a whole, whether you're talking about nationalized oil companies like Saudi Aramco or U.S. oil companies like ExxonMobil have power that far exceeds their borders, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, they have more power than any one government um, because they have power over several governments, including, like, Saudi Aramco, they they do a shitload of, like, lobbying and PR to shape policy in the U.S., mm-hmm. for example, because that impacts how they do business globally, right? So I don't know, this idea, I'm like, I don't know, like in both this story and the story we're going to talk about next, which was uh, Elizabeth Colbert did kind of a similar type of thing uh, that was called climate from A to Z and gave this sort of overarching, like, here's where we're at now, you know, as the climate narrative kind of shifts and we're looking forward to the next decade, you know, here's what's happened and what's happening and what people are predicting and all of that. Um, A similar kind of vibe there where it's like, you know, kind of looking at all of the different factors that have caused climate change, looking at all of the different factors that have caused the climate models to shift over the last few years, looking at the progress that's been made and the progress that hasn't been made and looking forward at what might happen. And then somehow leaves out this major powerful actor that has their hands in all of those things. (laughs) And, and I don't think that's like, uh, like superfluous thing. Um, Hmm. I don't know, especially like, I, like, well, but I'm like very deep in the weeds on, on a, an international um, story about the fossil fuel industry right, right now. And I'm just like, you cannot look at this situation and not question how is any one government going to get on top of 
an industry that is more powerful than all of them. Yeah. That doesn't really need to play by the rules of any one government. And honestly, that doesn't see themselves as having to play by the rules of any one government. There's this really famous quote from um, from ExxonMobil's former president, Lee Raymond, where like during the 90s when Exxon was starting to expand more internationally and they had quite a bit of bad press like in the, the 90s and throughout the 2000s because they took on a lot of mobiles international oil fields and and they were for for the most part in countries where there were a lot of of really questionable uh government policies happening there were a lot of corrupt politicians that that exxon was fine kind of playing ball with there was a lot of bad press around you know how they were like propping up dictators and all this stuff and lee raymond sort of famously said i don't know why people can't understand that like we're not an american company we're an oil company Mm-hmm. And that makes us a global entity. And like, it's not my job to like bring American ideas or democracy to other countries. Like it's my job to get oil out of those countries yeah. and sell it, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That is their job. I don't understand the problem. That's, I actually am like, yes, he's being very upfront and straightforward. The problem is when governments and citizens and media don't, acknowledge that and like you know (laughs) and and are like oh you know we should stop blaming them so much and we shouldn't point the finger and we should give them the benefit of the doubt and you know it's not all the oil companies fault yeah no one's saying it's all their faults what I'm pointing out is that it's very difficult to just look at policy and not look at the way that that industry is influencing policy yeah it's hard to solve a problem when you don't understand its causes Exactly. And I think that if you're doing that, like you're never going to see effective solutions. Um, Yeah, I just I don't know. I I don't understand how anyone thinks they're going to get on top of this problem without reining in the power of that industry. Yeah. And I don't know how you write like thousands of words about climate and not mention it. You're right. In both of these cases, both of these cases, the New York, Nor- the New Yorker piece and the New York uh, Times magazine piece. I, it's it's wild to me. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. There was a section um, in the Elizabeth Colbert article that I kind of got stuck on where she was talking about all the research says that um, doom and gloom narratives don't work on people and they shut people down and it, it causes right. paralysis. And so I don't think that Elizabeth actually takes a perspective on this. In the section, she's pretty much just quoting all other people. But Mm -hmm. what it sounded like to me was that, one, we actually don't have that much research on what narratives work and which narratives don't. But also, the research that is out there is always interpreted as weighing doom and gloom narrative versus, like, solutions-oriented and hope narratives. And I want people to understand that there are other options to choose from. That's right. (laughs) You know, like I did not get involved in the climate movement because I was hopeful. No. I get involved in the climate movement because I was scared. And I also wonder Mm -hmm. how much of this research takes the long look at people. Because usually what happens is, and most people who work in climate can tell you this, that they, when they first grappled with the problem, freaked out and went into a 
deep pit of despair and grief because mm-hmm. they are a normal person with a beating heart. And this is terrifying and yeah. overwhelming. And then right. they came out months later, <laughs> sometimes right. years later, ready to fight mm-hmm. for their lives because they had processed it. So if mm-hmm. we're saying that all this doom and gloom, which is really just like, I think reality, I don't think there's a lot of articles out there that are like, we're doomed folks. I actually don't see those articles mm-hmm. really. But the mm-hmm. articles that really like focus on the impacts of climate change and how much worse it stands to get and are realistic about that. I actually think that they do motivate people to be sustained climate activists. It just doesn't happen in an instant. Well, yeah. And also just it shifts all the time for people. Um, I don't know that there's, I don't know how you would even effectively study that because it changes so often. And because you know, we haven't really seen yet what the impact of, of like the last, you know, stuff that was happening a couple of years ago has had. Yeah. It's funny because in both of these cases, the, the authors talk about how there's been a remarkable amount of action in the last five years. It's still not enough, but that doesn't me- make it any less remarkable. And that has happened in the first few years in which People have been being realistic about climate change, you know? (laughs) So People are freaking out about this because they should. People are angry. And so there's a point in there in which um, Christina Figueres asks, like, what's the name of movement for social good that has been um, motivated by, like, despair and defeatism? There isn't one. And Mm -hmm. I would agree with that for the most part, but, like, show me the one that was built on, like, hope and sunshine and bunnies. That's, like, most of them were guided by anger. When I asked my mama, like, why she wasn't afraid when Emmett Till was murdered and she learned about it as a little kid and, like, why they kept showing up even though their lives were on the line, I was like, weren't you scared? And she was like, no, we were angry. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think that's true of so many other social movements. Like, I don't think those kids are out there risking their lives in Iran or or, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. all over the world, even right here in America, because they're like out there because of hope. They're out there because they're angry. That's right. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's I just I just think it's important in general to hold space for like the whole spectrum of, you know, emotional responses to climate. Like I think as we've talked about many times, like most people cycle through all of them. Right. Um, And there is quite a bit of research on how activating anger in particular can be, which is why I get so annoyed when people act like anger is like an inappropriate emotion to have about this, you know? Um, But like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think, um, I don't actually think that this dichotomy that people keep wanting to talk about exists. Mm -hmm. Um, Even even the people that are like, I don't know, like even the people that get mad about quote unquote hopium and like, you know, try to police people saying anything positive at all, like, you know, I, I I will also see those folks talking about, you know, the success of different movements or, 
how important it is to like build community or, you know what I mean? Like no one is just like a hundred percent doom killjoy all the time. Um, and like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I, I mean, I think I, like, I guess folks were maybe trying to do their end of the year, like state of play mm-hmm. on, on climate. Um, but, and, and I can very much appreciate how hard it is to do that and, and how tough it is to sort of encapsulate everything in, in one story and, and all of that. But yeah, I, 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 yeah, the thing that really jumped out to me was just the the lack of any kind of um, accountability hmm. piece. Yeah, at all. I guess that's a pretty big oversight. I didn't feel like either one of them was trying to tell me how to feel, though. No, no, not which at all. I so appreciated because I actually yeah. feel like usually a lot of these sorts of pieces wind mm-hmm. up with like a very strict point of view on how the reader should feel at the end that's very true i actually really appreciated that like in both of these cases it felt more like they were both trying to figure out like their own perspective yeah like oh okay like things have yeah exactly like oh okay like things have actually changed pretty significantly in the last five years like i need to maybe i need to update my thinking but like i'm not quite sure where i net out yeah. you know which to me i'm like yeah that seems about right that you know that feels like, like big progress honestly in these yeah. in long form like how should we feel about climate change pieces to come out like mm-hmm. not really sure i think that's actually big progress and uh yeah. you might say emotional growth on the part of of the media yeah. <laughs> that true. we get stories that it's are this true. nuanced and unresolved about climate change because i do feel like in any sort of climate change medium that's why we're always told that climate stories are so hard to tell because they don't have a neat conclusion right. Um, You hear that about climate books all the time. There's no neat conclusion. Mm -hmm. So the publishing industry doesn't quite know what to to do with them all the time Um, or in movies or in anywhere else. Like people want a neat ending and and you can't really get Mm -hmm. one. So it was kind of nice to see two articles, two long form articles in mainstream medium that I don't think are trying to tell the reader how to feel at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I really appreciate that. And I do think like that two major magazines giving this much space to climate stories period is definitely nice to see. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, speaking of which I want to give a quick shout out completely unrelated to these two stories we were just talking about, but we haven't talked about it yet. The Washington post uh, launched its climate vertical oh, nice. um, at the end of November and it's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, so far I'm like, they're the only ones that I have seen really follow through on all these promises we heard earlier this year about expanding climate coverage. So like huge kudos to them. Can we get some There's- air horn? Amy is praising a major media institution. This doesn't happen true, on our show every day. True. Well done. Like I, it's so, it's so good. It's, there's so many different types of stories there's such a breadth of coverage. You can tell that they really like invested mm-hmm. in the coverage and it's like, ah, oh, amazing. Um, I, I just, I think it's so, it's great to see it. I hope that other, um, other outlets follow suit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And with that, another ad break, Mary. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you listened to our episode with Aja Barber, you know that around here at Hot Take, we like to give experience gifts instead of just more stuff. And one of the best gifts in that vein that I have come across is Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You could learn songwriting from John Legend, or improve your cooking skills with Gordon Ramsay, or learn relational intelligence from Esther Perel. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long, so you can explore at your own pace. And each class is supported by downloadable materials, class guides, recipes, or more. Sessions, a new product from Masterclass, allow for a deeper dive into the lessons over a month-long period. Sessions include projects that you submit to a teaching assistant for feedback and the opportunity to learn alongside a community of peers. Masterclass is available on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. I highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Just go to masterclass.com slash hot take today. That's masterclass.com slash hot take. Terms apply. Hot Take is brought to you by Real Paper. I think we all know by now how much I love this toilet paper. It is not made from trees, which we need because they provide natural carbon capture. It's made with 100% sustainable bamboo. This holiday season, they have a new limited edition box. They also recently launched the Little Lemurs box. It's a 24-pack of their bamboo toilet paper that comes with a beautifully illustrated kids' book that tells an exciting story of sustainability. This box was designed to spark creativity in kids and create a small opportunity to talk about things like deforestation and plastic pollution, but in a light and easy way with your kids. And with the holidays here, the book could make a great gift for the little one in your list. I know talking about this stuff with kids can be difficult. I struggle with it with my own kids. It's not like a cheery topic of conversation to bring up. So things like this really help. Real Papers, Little Lemurs Box, and all of their other products are available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchase on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash lemur and sign up for a subscription using my code HOT at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. Let Real help you with your stocking stuffers and holiday gift giving. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash lemur and enter promo code HOT to get 30% off your order plus free shipping. Mary, Mary, did Amy. you know that there's there's actually another cop, um, a totally separate one? 
Oh, wow. It's like you're like a copaganda machine. Uh, yes, I, I did know about this. COP15 um, on yeah. biological diversity. Um, yeah. Yeah. I got, um, I don't often find PR pitches funny, but I got actually a really funny pitch that was like, hey, have you heard of the, the biodiversity cop? No. Yeah, because the media never covers it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been going on for 15 years, though. I know. I know. Yeah. So um, this was COP15. It's held in, it was held in Montreal. Oh, in the um, winter. That's rude. Yeah, I guess that's true. Montreal's really pretty in the winter, though. But yes, you're uh, right. if you Very like cold. freezing Very to death, cold. sure. That's true. That is true. Good food there, though. Mm, good food city. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Like the so there were um, delegates yeah. from more than 190 countries. Uh, mm -hmm. to come up with a plan to address the ecosystem and wildlife crises. Because mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. I learned embarrassingly late in my climate journey, that if the climate crisis does not take out humanity, the biodiversity crisis will. I actually thought the biodiversity yeah. crisis was a result of climate change. I didn't realize that they actually are separate problems. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's very crazy. I mean, climate yeah. change, of course, exacerbates it, but there is a biodiversity climate crisis. Um, can we just point out too that first of all, um, there's a thing that comes out of these biodiversity cops every year that's called the Convention on Biological Diversity or CBD. Just pause for effect. And <laughs> every country in the world is a party to CBD, except. The Vatican, and guess who else, Mary? Oh, no. United States? Yeah. I yeah, really was hoping right. to be wrong on that. I thought you were going to say, the like, Russia United or something. States? What? Come on! Come on. So the biggest Petro states in the world are signed on, and we're not. Mm -hmm. Yay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty crazy. The U.S. does always send a couple of, of delegates to try to shape the outcome of the conference, of course. But um, but yeah. But they're not a party to it. Big focus this year was this this 30 by 30 thing. Yeah, you know about this? I do. It's protecting 30 percent of uh, wildlife or, or land and water for mm -hmm. um, for biodiversity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. By 2030. By 2030. Right. And there was some. Interesting stuff happening around this at the the conference where indigenous folks were saying, you know, yeah, okay, but you have to make sure that you include indigenous land rights in that because actually biodiversity has been used as an excuse to kick indigenous people off of land, despite the fact that guess what? Indigenous land is where the best biodiversity protection is happening. I know. World. Shocker. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, indigenous practices are actually damn good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Working in harmony with nature, turns out. Yes, yes. There's also like I don't know. I I do feel like it's worth talking about these these weird sort of like arbitrary number goals yes, that come please. up both at the climate cop and Less the biodiversity thing. Like you know, people really fetishized 1.5, but like that was sort of just plucked out of the air. Like it's not. There's no scientific basis for yeah. 1.5 to stay alive or any of that stuff. It's a political Similarly, goal. 
like 30%. I guess that was like 30 for 30. Sounds good, right? You know, 30 under 30, 30 by 30, whatever it is. Uh, but what is the science just like actually pulled say? Pulled out the air. What it is doesn't the- say anything. It says like, protect as much as you can. Because right. like, we've already destroyed too much of it. But didn't they say like at least 50? Yes, at least. 50 yeah. is the goal that all of the actual conservation scientists talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, politicians are like, how about 30? Right. <laughs> I can sell 30. <laughs> I can sell 30. Right. Yeah. Um, and like not a lot of scientific research went into it before they just ran that out there as the goal. That's right. And, okay, yes, it is double what we have now. We have about 15% of land protected now. So it would double it by 2030, which is, you know, eight years away. So I think they probably were like, this is an achievable goal. We could do this. However, of course, as with the other cop, the big question is like, but who's going to pay for it? Mm. Who's going to pay for it? I don't know. How about the industries that fucked it up in the first place? Just Just an idea. Just spitballing. Why? Can we never talk about, including at the the climate one too? Like, why can't we talk about having these industries that have profited from being able to exploit the commons, land, water, air, for profit? Why can't we talk about having them pay into a fund that pays to protect those things for for the public that they have the made you know made money off of? I don't I don't understand it. I don't get it. Taxes. <laughs> like I think what you're about, proposing is taxes and fines. Got one word for you. Taxes. Yeah, taxes and fines. We already have all the mechanisms set up to do it. Um you know, I don't understand why why this is so hard. Right? Again, like if you don't pay your parking tickets, you have problems. Uh, like when we when when we like Um, think about the things that we need to live. It's like, okay, a livable atmosphere, clean air and clean water, land. But, you know, like these are all things that are really important for for humans to live. It shouldn't be this hard to get the sort of bare minimum of protections for them. Um, You could even say they're invaluable. Like you literally put a value on them. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Unfortunately, uh, CBD has a bad record for doing literally anything. I'm not talking about the cannabis. Love you. Love you, boo. <laughs> you get it done. But, um, but... I've never heard you say <laughs> boo before. <laughs> CBD, great. This CBD, not so much. Not effective. Not effective at all, Mary. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't yeah. think they're going to nail it in the 15th year? No. Ten years ago, the member countries agreed to a like similarly ridiculous 20 by 20, <laughs> oh, 20 no. targets to protect ecosystems by 2020. Did How'd that not work out? meet a single target. Not one of the 20. Oh, wow. Batten zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. my money is on not going to solve it this year. <laughs> No, and it's really, it's like, it's getting to a, a really, a real crisis point where we've already lost half of forests, half of coral reefs, 
80% of wetlands. Yeah. 80%. That's really bad because wetlands, you know, are are critical to dealing with flooding and storm surge. Yeah. Um, all of that They're stuff. You super know, so it's clutch like, in a hurricane, I'll tell you. Very clutch in a hurricane. That's right. That's right. So it's it's only gonna get worse unless we act now. And unless we kind of, you know, rebalance this whole situation, it's it's really it's disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, even other stuff, like, I, I feel like, I don't know, people, uh, this is, this is an, again, one of those things where I think people like, oh, this nature over there doesn't affect me. Yeah, it really fucking does. Do you like food? Yeah. Do you like diversity in your food? <laughs> because guess what? You're going to fucking lose it if you don't get on top of this stuff. You know, like, do you like coffee, chocolate, wine, mm-hmm. bread, pasta, cheese, like all that shit is impacted by this, you know? So, like, even if you don't care about um, ecosystems for ecosystems' sake, humans are part of ecosystems. Everything we do is impacted by ecosystem collapse. You know... absolutely will be affected by it. I am absolutely terrified by how many people do not understand that. And also, like, most of those people are... I I think about this when I think about um, the decline of local media. Because so many of the people who see themselves as outside of nature are folks who grew up in big cities, unfortunately. And that's where all of our media is situated right now. So, like, Mm -hmm. what sorts Mm -hmm. of stories would we get about climate change if we had thriving local newsrooms in small towns or smaller cities even just across the country? We would have such a richer story. Mm Mm-hmm. Very, very uh, true. that, That thought just made me really sad. Yeah, it's a giant bummer. And and really like who wins when when smaller local outlets go out of business? It's it's big business, mm-hmm. you know? It's people who have shit to hide for the most part, you know? Like I just yeah, I don't know. That's actually a huge a huge bummer um yeah. that's happening right now in in media in general. There's the, you know, the total decimation of local newsrooms and then really like just an absolute bloodletting across media in in general right now that includes a lot of of you know like local reporters that work for for national outlets too it's um yeah not great yeah i think that's why you don't hear as much about all the like regular spills <laughs> pipelines yeah. and accidents like that's even right. just those stories get lost because there's not enough journalists to cover them that's right. Or not yeah. enough paid journalists. Yeah, yeah. Very, very true. I want to talk about one uh, another story that's kind of related to what we were just talking about with respect to the, the biodiversity conference, which is the spread of rights of nature and degrowth as ideas that are starting to actually like get baked into political and legal systems right now. Okay. Um, not not really in the U.S. so much, but starting. There's a little, like, bubbling up of that in the U.S. too. But in a big way in a lot of Latin American countries where um, there's been kind of major shifts in government over the past few years, and they're starting to really look at, like, okay, what would it look like if we valued, say, biodiversity as like a central marker of success in our economy and our government, Mm. (laughs) you know, like 
what would it look like if we actually um, gave ecosystems rights? Um, the same way that the U.S. gives corporations rights. Uh, what, like, how would, would our decisions be different? What kind of a decision-making framework would we have mm -hmm. if we had to think through the impact on ecosystems or the impact on biodiversity or the impact on public health um, instead of just the impact on corporate profits? Right. Uh, that is, like, a question that really, really, really needs to be, you know, grappled with. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, you know, like, in... I don't know. I feel like in the U.S. this thing comes up all the time where people are like, oh, so you think capitalism is the problem. What do you want? Communism? In the same way that, like, you know, despair and hope are not the only options. Uh, communism and capitalism are not the only options either. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like, I, I feel like actually right now some of the best examples of other ways of doing stuff are in Latin America. Yeah. Um, so there's this great story in the New York Times uh, recently about Uruguay and it, it's called what does sustainable living look like maybe like Uruguay and it talks about all of these things that they're doing there and how they've managed to reach you know 98% renewable energy and um, are you know just taking some some different paths than we've seen in other countries and weirdly like most of what they're talking about in this article is what's called degrowth which is you know, uh, an idea that's like, look, you can't have endless growth on a planet with finite resources. Endless growth has been a hallmark of modern capitalism. It cannot continue to be if we're going to survive. Like, what does another alternative look like? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and for some reason, this article never uses that word, but it definitely describes a bunch of policies that would fall underneath that kind of rubric. Um, so yeah, I want to I'm going to read you like a little passage from it. Okay. While the math of decarbonization and electric mobilization is clear, the future lifestyle it implies isn't always very true. Right-wing commenters sometimes seize upon this fact to caricature any climate policy as a forced retreat from modernity. Americans forced to live in ecopods, while on the left, any accounting seems to cloud the urgency of the moment. A majority of emissions come from just a hundred or so corporations, activists argue, a concentration of industrial production that, once decarbonized, could slash the footprint beneath every wall sconce and sandwich. Even if it were true, these arguments conveniently ignore one uncomfortable fact. Walmart, ExxonMobil, and Berkshire Hathaway didn't burn that fuel on their own. We paid them to or burned it ourselves because the way we live depends on it. So hmm. it kind of, it asks the question of like, okay, we need to actually look at how we're going to systemically drive broader changes in our quote unquote way of life, which is interesting because I feel like that is the big argument that you always hear against climate policy is like, and in fact, we've heard presidents say before, our way of life is not up for negotiation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and like, Okay, but when did we all really like collectively decide that our way of life was going to be like high consumption, you know, endless growth? I don't know. It's I like that's kind of think this is why energy efficiency doesn't get the love it needs, right? Cuz it's like Yes. It would yes. cut down on the way that we live. 
Mm-hmm. It would cut mm-hmm. down on our own impressions of our excess and, and our like, you know, yeah. abundance. And of that excess as, yeah, as being like a marker of success and well-being, right? right. Like, um, so there's this, it's really interesting the, like the, the movement that's kind of underfoot to really redefine what people need to live well in a society and like how you then structure government and economy around fulfilling those needs as opposed to fulfilling the desires of corporations for endless profits. Yeah, I feel like if like this sort of mythology is becoming a threat to our very existence, it might be time to let the myth go. Maybe it was a bad myth. That's right. Exactly. And the reality is, you know, people are like, oh, socialism, blah, blah, blah. Without government subsidies, fossil fuels are not actually the best market. (laughs) Exactly. We have socialism just in the wrong direction. We have corporate socialism. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so the idea that like, oh, you know, we have to let the markets decide, blah, blah, blah. The markets are very much rigged and tampered with. Um, Yeah. And and they're they're all kind of set up around a value system that maybe doesn't serve the interests of the public. You know, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of assumptions around, oh, this is what Americans value. Well, um, I don't know that that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. But I hear this a lot from, from not just right-wing folks, but also from a lot of like kind of more technocratic folks, a lot of the the, the people that you often see getting accused of, you know, climate delay too, is like, well, you know, we can't have a, a reduction in quality of life or we can't stop the global South from having an improvement in their quality of life, you know, just to, to get rid of fossil fuels or whatever. And, uh, and I, I kind of feel like they're, they're sort of stopping short of thinking the whole thing through, mm. um, you know, like even actually in the most recent IPCC report, there was some really interesting, um, well, they, it drew on some really interesting new work in the field of economics where people are really starting to look at like, okay, what are the, like the services that people actually need to have a good quality of life mm-hmm. and how can we supply those things um, without starting with the assumption that quality of life is fueled by fossil fuels, which has been a really baked in assumption in economics for a really long time, by the way. It's like fossil fuels equals improved quality of life. Fossil fuels equals increased life expectancy. Like that's been a thing that's been just like a hard and fast rule in economics forever. And finally, in the last 10 years, there's been a bunch of research that's like, actually... We're not sure that's true. I would also um, say that if you're a coal miner, it drastically reduces. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or if you live next to a coal mine or you live next to a refinery, like, I I, mean, I don't know. This whole thing, like, the, the, the phrase energy poverty has been coming up a lot from the fossil fuel industry and folks that want to see the fossil fuel industry continue uh, as is. And... I think like, and, and it refers to, you know, a lack of access to affordable energy, um, stable energy, all of that kind of stuff, right? Like not not being able to turn the lights on, not being able to, to cook on a stove that's not like a, a wood burning 
or coal burning stove, those kinds of, of kind of basic energy needs. But the reality is like, I'm not like, there's not a lot of great data on, you know, fossil fuel companies going into countries that have a high level of energy poverty and actually solving that problem. Yeah. And instead, what you see is fossil fuel companies going into those countries and making a shitload of money off of exploiting those countries' resources, which they then export to other countries. Yeah. You know, (laughs) one thing I will never forgive the fossil fuel industry for is when the American Petroleum Institute published that report saying that uh, maybe Black people aren't getting sick because they're near fossil fuel infrastructure. Maybe it's just their bad genes. Oh, my God. God, I forgot about that. And it's so fucking awful. I'll never forget wow. that. <laughs> Maybe it's just bad genes. <laughs> wow. Wow. Pay no wow. attention to the noxious fumes in the air. Maybe they just get cancer because that's what they do. Oh, my God. Never oh going to forget it. Oh, my God. Wow. But they would like you to believe that they are single-handedly lifting the entire continent of Africa out of poverty. Out of the goodness um, of their hearts, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. just because it's the right yes. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. That's it for this time, I think. I think we covered most of it, right, Mary? Yep. Do you do any impressions? <laughs> I could do an impression of my husband. Oh my gosh, please. In a Scottish accent. Please. Do you want me to do that? Yes. All right, big man, shut it. <laughs> Is that really what he sounds like? <laughs> right, let's go. He really sounds like that? Yeah, he does. I'm sorry to say, it's true. All right. Oh, actually, I'll give you an impression of him watching the Harry and Meghan Netflix docuseries. You guys did that. We watched the first episode and he spent the entire time going, I fucking hate these people. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones does he hate? All of the royals. Mm. All of them. Yeah. 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 He's like, oh, was it hard, Megan? Was it hard having shitloads of money? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Hattie. <laughs> Hot Take is a Cricket Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Leo Duran is our senior producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crooked media. Oh, wait, so he hates what does he not also hate like, you know, the folks who are racist to Meghan Markle though? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know like so little thing. about this entire story. I'm I'm terribly confused. He's he's basically like um I think he's basically like uh thinks the whole royal family should not exist anymore and that all of that money should just be like 
given to the people and all of the shit that they stole from everyone should be returned. And um, he's like, yeah, I mean, I would leave the royal family too. I just wouldn't like then continue to make a bunch of money off of them by talking about how and why I left the royal family. Yeah. I guess I I had to follow this. If you want to be done, just be done. Like, just leave, you know? Um, Yeah. I try to stay out of like millionaire and billionaire problems. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like billionaire problems. It's really hard to feel sorry for for people who are still very much benefiting from generational wealth that was stolen from lots of people. Yeah, (laughs) lots of people. Honestly, I was yeah. thinking the other day, why isn't it called cultural appropriation when the queen wears like diamonds from India? True. Yes. <laughs> yes. Those yes. Aren't her. I was watching it like so there's like a bunch of um I only saw the first episode. There's a bunch of scenes in the first episode of them both like pushing strollers and like wearing babies. And I'm like, come on. This is like the the five times that either of them did that in the last three years. Like we all know, they have an entire staff taking care of their kids. <laughs> like this is this is not real. Um, there's this whole. She's like, okay, both the kids are down to sleep, and I'm like, come on, is anyone really buying that this lady's like putting her kids down for naps every day? I don't buy it. Mm. <laughs> like, no, I don't think uh, I'm gonna watch this. It's not good. Yeah. Just purely from, well, A, there's like no new information in it. And then B, it's like, you know, they're like, okay, let's sit in our enormous mansion in Montecito and tell you about all of our troubles. (laughs) Yeah. It's very hard. It's very hard to take seriously. I've been watching a lot of like uh, documentaries and a lot of them are like, I don't know. I know people say you're not supposed to watch true crime documentaries for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but I'm always very interested in the types of stories the police tell about themselves in those documentaries. Yes. Yeah. It's always fascinating to watch how they perceive it's fascinating. Themselves. I think so too. Yeah. I've been I have I've been doing the same. I've been watching a lot of those kinds of things and I'm consistently like, oh my God, this guy's perception of of what happened versus what actually happened is really Different. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The myth, yeah. you, it's like you watch myth making take place in real time. And I guess as a communicator and yeah. writer, that's always very fascinating to me. And as a person, yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay. There's that other voice that Amy does that drives me up <laughs> the fucking wall. And. I've been working on this impression for a shorter period of time because it drives me insane. Whenever Amy's about to get off the phone, she does this specific voice. And it's like Mm this. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate it so much. (laughs) So good. So good. That was a really good one. <laughs> you just, like, just want to like slam the phone down. Uh, yeah, that's why I do it. It makes everyone want to get off the phone as much as I do. Oh my god, <laughs> it is effective. It is an effective strategy. Oh man, yeah. 